0: Well, good morning, Calvary family. It's great uh, to be back. I want to thank you uh, all for praying uh, for us as we were visiting my dad after his quadruple bypass surgery, and then as we took uh, our oldest daughter, Alethea, to Clark Summit University in Pennsylvania, a very kind of special time in our lives, very unique and important time in our lives, and I really appreciate uh, your prayers for us, and uh, my dad's doing really well, so appreciate all who have uh, prayed for him also want to give a special thanks to austin dosh uh, for preaching while i was away and uh, to jim west for preaching on the day after i got back uh, so i could really focus on my family during that time and the messages that they brought were really powerful really timely i'm so grateful uh, for the way the holy spirit works through the preaching of his word uh, through our brothers and i'm so grateful for them I was kind of joking around with Austin in the office because I was driving through the night because I had to, uh, we had to drop uh, Lathy off on uh, Friday evening, we we, we got kind of free at about 7.30 and I had a noon appointment in Grand Rapids the next day, so I had to drive through the night and so I listened to Austin's message at about 2 o'clock in the morning when I was really hitting the wall. And... um, and I told him, I was like, man, you, you grabbed my attention. You kept it throughout that, you know, that 45 minutes just went by, um, you know, so, so well and it's such a powerful message. And uh, when he heard that I listened to it at two in the morning when I was tired, he, he, he kind of joked, he said, well, I'm, I'm really glad I didn't put you to sleep, <laughs> you know? So, so I, I guess that's good because, uh, you know, it's better than uh, if he was hoping I had fell, fallen asleep. So uh, great, uh, great blessings our brothers brought to us. Well, this morning we're going to return to our study of the book of Isaiah, and I'm really excited about launching into chapters 36 through 39. So we're going to be picking up uh, where we left off about a month ago at uh, the end of chapter 35. Before we kind of dive into that section, what I thought I'd do, because um, it's been a few weeks uh, with uh, Sunil John preaching, and then Austin, and then... Uh, Jim West as well as if you remember I did kind of a a, we took a break from Isaiah and I did a couple topical messages in between then and so since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Isaiah I want to spend some time reviewing uh, what we've studied in the first 35 chapters to kind of pause for a moment and kind of zoom out and see the big picture and then in the last 20 minutes we'll dive into chapter 36. So again, kind of zooming out so you can recall the big picture, the book of Isaiah is divided into three distinct parts. And the transitions between the three parts are marked by historical narratives. There are two historical narratives in the book of Isaiah, and they provide the transitions between part one and part two, as well as between part two and part three. And so there's a historical narrative at chapter seven, beginning in verse one, and now a second narrative beginning in chapter 36 and verse one. And I want to begin by pointing out to you the similarities between those two narrative sections. I want you to notice that both of the narrative sections, chapter 7 and then chapter 36, they begin with the exact same Hebrew construction, which simply means now it came to pass, or now here's what happened. It's kind of a construction indicating that the author is going to tell you some history. And they both begin with that same construction. And Isaiah is marking for us the transitions between the three different parts of his book. Now, in both of these narratives, in chapter 7 and now in chapter 36, the situation is somewhat similar. In both of the narratives, the king of Judah is facing the threat of invasion. In chapter 7, King Ahaz is facing the threat of invasion by the 10 northern tribes and by their ally of Syria. And in chapter 36, Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah is facing the threat of invasion by the Assyrians. So in both narratives, the king of Judah is facing the threat of invasion. In both narratives, Isaiah exhorts the king to trust in the Lord, not in foreign powers to deliver him from this invasion. And in both narratives, God offers the king a miraculous sign in order to strengthen his faith and to show that God will protect them if they will but trust in him. But that is where the two narratives diverge is in the response of the kings. In the first narrative in chapter 7, King Ahaz rejects Isaiah's exhortation and refuses the Lord's sign. But in the second narrative, Hezekiah heeds Isaiah's exhortation and accepts the Lord's sign that is why uh, scholars by the name of Radelnick and Spencer who write in the Moody Bible commentary on Isaiah they entitle chapter 7 and chapter 36 in parallel ways they entitle chapter 7 quote a narrative of a sign rejected ahaz chooses to trust the nation and they entitle chapter 36 a narrative of a sign accepted Hezekiah chooses to trust the Lord. So there are two signs, one rejected and one accepted, two decisions, one to trust the nations and one to trust the Lord. And so there is a sharp contrast being made by Isaiah between Ahaz's decision to trust in mankind and Hezekiah's decision to trust in God. And that, frankly, is the question that the book of Isaiah keeps confronting us with over and over and over again. The question is this, in whom will you put your trust for deliverance? In whom will you put your trust? How you answer that question will determine whether or not you will collapse with the collapsing hope of man or whether you will stand firm on the unshakable hope of Christ our rock and redeemer so even the structure of the book of Isaiah is teaching us lessons in fact I would say that the overall structure of Isaiah teaches us three key lessons so I want to take you back to the overall outline of the book and just kind of point out the obvious lessons from them Chapters 1 through 6 take us into the divine courtroom. God is seated on his throne and he is entering into judgment upon mankind and upon Judah and Jerusalem, specifically as it is said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. So we have the divine courtroom in chapters 1 through 6, and then we have warnings against the judgment for sin in chapters 7 through 35. And then the third and final section focuses on salvation by grace. And that overall outline of the book of Isaiah really covers three of the major themes of the entire Bible. Number one, we will all stand before God because he is the judge of all the earth that's what the first six chapters are about God is the judge Isaiah sees him sitting on his throne holy and exalted and majestic and the angels are crying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty the whole earth is filled with his glory he is the judge and we will all answer to him Secondly, we see that sin brings judgment. That's what chapter 7 through 35 is about. God is a just judge and a just judge doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. So there is judgment for sin. Then the third section really answers the question well then how is there any hope after all the bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god we've all broken god's law so in the divine courtroom we will all be pronounced guilty and since god is a just judge he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished we're all going to face then eternal punishment so how can there be any hope for sinful and fallen mankind and the third section of the book of isaiah is going to give us the answer. It is salvation by grace through faith in Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah promised in Isaiah, revealed in the Gospels and explained in the epistles, he is our only hope. So I hope you'll learn a lot through the details of our study as we look at kind of the more specific points as we're studying different passages. But I want to make sure that you don't miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes we can get so down into the weeds with the details that we miss the big picture. And so as we kind of re-engage our study of the book of Isaiah, I wanted to zoom out and just make sure you have that gospel big picture in mind as we're studying this book. This book is... Its outline is the gospel. God is the judge, we are sinful, but the Messiah brings us salvation by grace through faith in him. And so the key question is in whom will you put your trust for deliverance? Those three core truths need to be in our minds as we study the details. Well, with those main points in mind, I want to kind of remind ourselves of the journey we've been on and as we studied the first 35 chapters of the book, We started by looking at the divine courtroom in chapters one through six, and we looked at the prologue. In chapter 1 verse 1 which really kind of lays out an outline and then we saw the indictment of Judah for their sin in chapter 1 the indictment of Jerusalem at the end of chapter 1 and then the reckoning for those sins in chapter 2 the discussion of the remnant that even though a reckoning is coming upon the nation God out of his covenant faithfulness will preserve a remnant and then it says towards the end of chapters 2 through 4 that Israel will be restored in the end times. There's a great restoration coming for them. Then we saw in chapter 5 why the nation had fallen. They fell because of individualistic materialism, because of immersive merriment, and because of inverted moralism. And then we come to the culmination of the first part of Isaiah where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. And chapter six then teaches us the right response to God's holiness and to his call and to his verdict and that right response is repentance, readiness to serve and respect for God's divine verdicts. That was the divine courtroom. And then we moved on to looking at Judgment for sin in chapters 7 through 35. And we looked at the kind of the valleys of judgment and then the peaks of messianic hope in chapters 7 through 12. We saw the refusal of Ahaz to trust the Lord. We saw the promise of the Redeemer who will be born of a virgin. We saw the rebellion of the nation. We saw the prophecy of the coming messianic ruler, the child who will be born to us, who is God Almighty. We saw that the Assyrians were going to be used as a rod of discipline by God. We saw then the promise of restoration of the nation. And in that promise of restoration, we see again the concept of the remnant in chapter ten, we see the prophecy of the root of David. This tree that has been cut down to a stump, out of that stump, out of that root of David, is going to come a, messi- a messiah, like a like a twig springing out of a, out of a stump, and that's going to grow into a tree which will give shade to the whole world. The root of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, will redeem his people. And then chapter 11 talks about the great regathering of Israel from their exile amongst the nations in the end times, and chapter 12 ends with the great rejoicing which will result from that. So we saw the valleys of judgment and the peaks of messianic hope in chapter 7 through 12. Then. We looked at the judgment upon the nations in chapters 13 through 23 and we looked at 11 lessons we can learn from these 11 judgments pronounced on 11 different nations. And then we moved on to chapters 24 through 27, which talk about the triumph of the kingdom of God. And so notice the progression. The nations are judged and the kingdom of God triumphs in the end. And we see in chapter 24, we saw the tribulation judgments that are coming. And then chapter 25, the blessings of the millennial kingdom. Chapter 26 tells us how to enter into the kingdom of God and that is by faith and then chapter 27 lays out the choice repent or perish make peace with God now or perish in the eschaton and then we moved on to chapters 28 through 35 which I entitled woes and wonders joys and judgments and we saw there six woes and then an incredible wonder woe to the drunkards Woe to the spiritually apathetic. Woe to those who live a double life. Woe to rebellious children. Woe to those who trust in human power. Woe to tyrannical rulers. And then wondrous joy promised to the redeemed in chapter 35. And that is where we left off. And so just to review, we've gone through the first two major parts of the book of Isaiah, which are the divine courtroom and judgment for sin. But even though... The courtroom and judgment for sin are the focus of the first 35 chapters, don't forget that chapters 1 through 35 ends in chapter 35 verse 10 with these incredible hope-giving words. Look at chapter 35 verse 10, which says, "...the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion." with everlasting joy on their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. What an incredible promise. And that verse is the last verse before this third major part of the book begins, which discusses salvation by grace. Salvation by grace. Salvation by grace alone by faith alone, in Christ the Messiah alone. And again, we're reminded by this outline that people have broken God's law, and they're therefore guilty in the divine courtroom, that there is judgment for sin, but now we're coming to the point in the outline, which talks about the hope, the only hope which is the grace of God through the atonement that would be made by the coming Messiah, who chapter 53 is going to tell us is going to suffer and die to pay the penalty of sin. So the message of chapters 36 through 66 is the message of grace. God's grace is our only hope. And in chapters 36 through 39, Isaiah is going to begin to teach us that lesson. And he's going to begin to teach us the lesson about salvation by grace, not through teaching us the theology of it first, but by giving us a living illustration of it. He's going to take us back 2,700 years ago to take a look at the life of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And I've entitled this section in chapters 36 through 39, Fearful, flawed, and faithful. The story of Hezekiah. And I think as we look at Hezekiah's life this week and next and possibly a third week, we're going to be seeing a lot of parallels with our own struggles, our own challenges. So I want to begin this section by reviewing what led up to the events which are recorded in chapters 36 through 39 to make sure you kind of have the historical context in mind. Remember, that back in the time of Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, Judah faced invasion by the alliance of the 10 northern tribes of Israel with Syria. They were trying to force Judah to join their alliance in order to fight together against the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a rising world superpower, and the Assyrians were conquering nation after nation after nation, and they were horribly brutal and so the 10 northern tribes in Syria thought well maybe if we form a three way alliance we can stand against the Assyrians Ahaz rejected that because he was sure the Assyrians would win in the end and so instead he tried to make friends with the Assyrians and the Assyrians in return imposed heavy tribute on the Judeans and began turning them into a vassal state of Assyria So then Ahaz and the people under this heavy yoke the Assyrians were putting on them tried to get out from under that yoke by forging an alliance with the Egyptians. The Egyptians were a declining world superpower at the time. But Ahaz hoped that one superpower could counterbalance the other and that somehow Judah, this little kingdom right in between them, could maintain their independence. But Isaiah forcefully warned against this. He had warned Ahaz against making friends with the Assyrians because he knew what it would mean. And now he warns them against making friends with the Egyptians and relying upon them. Isaiah keeps saying to Ahaz, Trust in the Lord. He will deliver you. Don't put your trust in human power. Ahaz made the wrong choice with terrible consequences. But when Ahaz died, his son Hezekiah began his soul rule. Uh, Ahaz and Hezekiah overlapped as was often the case in transitions between father and son but after Ahaz died and Hezekiah began his soul rule he unlike his father heeded Isaiah's counsel and so at some point in his reign he refused to pay the tribute demanded by the Assyrians and so in 701 BC the Assyrians invaded Judah and that's what we read about in Isaiah chapter 36 verses 1 through 3 read along with me. It says now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. By the way in about 1830 I believe it was, a prism was discovered in the ruins of Nineveh, the ancient capital of Assyria and on this prism written in Akkadian cuneiform was what is called the Annals of Sennacherib. This is Sennacherib's own historical account of his conquest. And it lists all of these cities and towns that he captured and destroyed in his invasion of the promised land. But very interestingly, it says, I captured this city, I conquered this city, I destroyed this city, I destroyed that city. But when it comes to Jerusalem, Sennacherib says something differently. He says, Hezekiah refused to submit to me, and so I trapped him like a caged bird in Jerusalem. So in other words, all of these cities were conquered, but for some reason, Jerusalem was not. And Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 is going to explain to us why Sennacherib could not conquer Jerusalem. Our text goes on in verse two to tell us what happens next. So the Assyrian army is capturing all of these cities of Judah. And it says in verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lacius to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household... And Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. And so the Assyrian army comes and the Judeans send out a delegation to try to negotiate with them. Now, a little bit as an aside, I'm going to just kind of take a little brief excursus here and talk a little bit about verse 3. When I was first reading and studying verse 3, like you, I... Appreciated the historical detail. I mean, how amazing is it that 2,700 years later we know who the three men were who were sent by Hezekiah to talk to Rabshakeh, the commander of the Assyrian army? That's incredible historical detail. But I didn't really see much of a, not necessarily a preaching point to verse 3 until I realized that Shebna and Eliakim had already been mentioned before in the book of Isaiah and that was back in chapter 22. So flip back to Isaiah chapter 22 and listen to how these two men are mentioned in chapter 22, which happens many years beforehand. Isaiah 22, verse 15. This is right in the section where... Isaiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is rebuking the nation for their sin. And it says this in Isaiah twenty-two fifteen: Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, Tashibna, who is in charge of the royal household. Now, to be in charge of the royal household made you basically the second most powerful man in the nation, somewhat akin to a prime minister. So Shebna, here at this time, is in charge of the royal household. He's basically prime minister of the kingdom of Judah. But God sends Isaiah to him, and and Isaiah says to him in verse 16, What right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height, who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. He apparently had made a tomb for himself Um, at some place which was inappropriate for him perhaps the tombs of the kings or of something like that which showed that there was a threat to the Davidic line but whatever he did was so wicked that verse 17 Isaiah says the Lord is about to hurl you headlong O man he's about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country there you will die and there your splendid chariots will be the shame of your master's house I will depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder." when he opens no one will shut and when he shuts no one will open so here's a prophecy that Shebna will be deposed from his position and eventually he will be taken away into exile which happens later but notice what is said in verse 30, chapter 36 verse 3 it says then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah who was over the household just as Isaiah 22 predicted and Shebna is who now? just a scribe just a scribe Isaiah's prophecy had come true. Shebna had been replaced by Eliakim as the head of the king's household. And so even in the smallest of historical detail, the Bible is teaching us that the word of God is always accurate and that what it predicts will happen just as has been written down even to the details of the positions and titles of individuals. This is something that should inspire confidence in us because there are many prophecies that the Bible has made which are yet to be fulfilled in the future. But when we look at examples like this, we realize what God has said will happen down to the most minute of details, down to the demotion of Shebna from prime minister to just a scribe to take notes for the guy who replaced him. The word of God is always true. The next thing I want you to notice from these three verses is that this important meeting between Rabshakeh and the Assyrian commander and Hezekiah's delegation takes place at the exact same spot where Isaiah had talked to Ahaz 33 years earlier. Remember, 33 years earlier, God had told Isaiah, go and meet Ahaz where? at this exact same spot the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field and so Isaiah goes and talks to Ahaz at this spot tells him to trust the Lord not to fear the coming invasion but trust the Lord now at this exact same spot 33 years later Hezekiah's delegation is going out now to confront the leaders of the Assyrian army the exact same spot And so there is an incredible parallel and contrast which is occurring here. Tragically, when Isaiah talked to Ahaz at this exact spot and exhorted him to trust God instead of human powers, Ahaz refuses. But now, through the ultimatum that the Assyrians give to Hezekiah's delegation at this exact same spot, Hezekiah is facing a virtually identical choice as the choice faced by his father. But this time, the circumstances are, are worse. When Ahaz had his conversation, it was just a one-on-one conversation with Isaiah, the prophet of God. Now, Hezekiah's delegation is standing in front of an army of 185,000 enemy soldiers who were known for their incredible brutality and who had been unbrokenly victorious in battle. Two very similar situations, but the one Hezekiah is facing is much much, much more difficult. But notice the difference between the reactions. Ahaz disobeyed the Lord even though he only faced potential danger. Hezekiah, on the other hand, obeys the Lord even when he's facing actual danger. Ahaz faces potential danger and crumbles. Hezekiah faces real danger and stands. And there is an important lesson for us here. Over the years, I've noticed that those who disobey the Lord because of their fear of suffering or persecution or hardship usually do so when there is only the threat of persecution and hardship, not when they face actual persecution or hardship. In other words, people cave at the point of threat, not at the point of actual persecution. Compromisers, those who compromise in the face of pressure, usually cave to the pressure of evil powers before any real suffering or persecution occurs. Just the possibility of facing hardship is enough to get them to cave. Meanwhile, those who stand, they usually win the battle with their fears at the point of threat and then they do well at the point of actual danger. And so there is a practical lesson for us here. I want you to listen very carefully to this lesson because we don't know what we may face in the future, but we know that the threats are starting to sound. The key moment of decision is when you are first faced with the possibility of danger or hardship for serving Christ and standing for truth. That's where the decision point is. The moment of decision is when you first realize that you could face hardship, suffering, or persecution if you do the right thing. That's your moment of decision. If you can overcome the threat, you'll overcome the danger with no problem. And I've seen and observed and had this testified to me in a variety of places in this world over and over and over again. In the countries where there is real persecution they will tell you it's at the moment when your family threatens to disown you that you have a choice to make it's not when they actually disown you it's when they tell you we will disown you if you don't deny christ or we will disown you if you get baptized or we will disown you if you continue to go to church that's the moment of decision if you win there you'll endure all the persecutions and sufferings just fine Those who capitulate, those who turn back, do so at the point of threat. It's the lesson Peter learned, isn't it? He faced a threat and caved, but then when God, when he repented and when Jesus restored him, and then later on when he faced threats, he stood against the threats, and so he stood strong all the way to the end of his martyrdom. It is the anticipation of negative reactions from the world that is the hardest thing to get over. Once you get over that, the actual risks are easy. Win at the beginning and you'll win in the end. So over the years, through the example of many others and some experiences of my own, I've learned That obedience to the calling and commands of Christ depend on winning the battle with the threat or possibility of danger, of hardship, or of suffering. If you win the battle with anticipatory fear, you'll do just fine when facing actual fear. I'll say that again. If you win the battle with anticipatory fear, you'll do just fine when facing actual fear. Satan and those he controls, the evil powers of this world, they are powerful. And we always need to be prepared and ready for persecution to become a reality. Jesus said, Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So suffering, hardship, persecution can become a reality at any moment. But we also need to remember this Satan's bark is usually worse than his bite. So if you can resist the urge to cave when he barks, you'll do just fine when he tries to bite. Resist the urge to run when he barks, and you'll do fine when he tries to bite. And there's a reason you'll do fine when he tries to bite, because behind you, with you, and in front of you is the Lion of Judah. And that barking dog will run with his tail between his legs. This is the difference between Ahaz and Hezekiah. When the enemy barked, Ahaz caved. But even in the presence of real mortal life danger to Hezekiah, he stood firm. And once he endured the Assyrians' bark, as we're gonna see next week, the Lion of Judah intervened to deliver him from their bite. So resisting Satan's bark, is the key to defeating his bite. And because that is so important to learn, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning and then we'll really pick this up next week. I want to examine the bark of the enemy. I want to look at the threats, the intimidation tactics used by Shaka, the commander of the Assyrian army, as recorded in chapter 36, verse 4, all the way through 37, verse 13. This passage where Rabshakeh comes so Sennacherib is in the final stages of conquering Laishish. and so he takes he has a massive army, he takes a powerful part of army his army and sends it to Jerusalem so Sennacherib is still at Laishish, takes one of his key commanders, sends him with a powerful army to Jerusalem and these 185,000 about men come to the walls of Jerusalem and Rabshakeh is going to try to convince Hezekiah to surrender without a fight just to give up And he's going to use 11 intimidation tactics against the Judeans and against King Hezekiah. And through the 11 methods of intimidation that Rabshakeh uses, we're going to learn lessons about how evil powers always try to intimidate God's people. This passage is going to give us remarkable insight into the way evil powers try to intimidate God's people into compromise or capitulation. They want us to give up without a fight. And so we need to be familiar with these 11 methods of intimidation and know how to resist them because these same pressure tactics are used in our day just in a different way. And we can be glad that we're not you know, facing an enemy that's you know, gonna you know, disembowel us and as Rabshakeh says, you says, know, we're gonna lay siege to you until you're starving so badly you're gonna drink your own urine and eat, eat your own feces. We're not facing that threat. But with lesser pressures evil powers still try to use these same 11 intimidation tactics. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of briefly list through them and then next week we'll kind of go through the passage and we'll talk about them in greater detail. But let's take a brief look at 11 pressure tactics used by evil powers to intimidate God's people into capitulation. Compromising the truth, capitulating to whatever they want. What are the 11 Pressure tactics evil powers use. I have them listed in font so small uh, only a microscope can see them. But don't worry, we'll enlarge them as we go one by one. Number one, oops, there we go. Number one, evil powers emphasize their own power and prestige. Number two, evil powers assert that God's people have placed their confidence in empty words. Number three, evil powers assume that God's people are relying on human power and human leaders. Number four, evil powers accuse God's people of dishonoring God. Number five, evil powers attempt to entice God's people by offering them position, power, and prosperity. Number six, evil powers twist and misapply God's word. Number seven, evil powers pressure God's people by telling them that they'll be responsible for the suffering of others unless they do what the evil powers demand. Number eight, evil powers undermine people's confidence in godly leaders. Number nine, evil powers claim there is no difference at all between Yahweh and the false gods of the nations. Number 10, Evil powers question the integrity of God's own word. And number 11, evil powers constantly tell God's people to, quote, get on the right side of history. That's how evil powers bark. That's how they barked 2,700 years ago. That's how they bark in our day. You need to learn how to withstand these 11 intimidation tactics. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want to ask you to consider something. When the world uses these 11 methods of intimidation, what will your response be? Remember, the key decision point is at the point of threat. When you at your job are faced with a choice, say what they demand you say. Do what they demand you do wear or display what they demand you wear or display or else that's the point of threat and that's the point of your decision they will apply intimidation tactics I know that some of our brethren used to advise their children they would drive them by a prison and they would say look at it are you willing to live there are you willing to live there choose now before they bring the choice to you when the world uses these 11 methods of intimidation what will your response be will you cave, will you capitulate will you compromise like Ahaz did or will you pray, persevere and praise like Hezekiah did, who will you trust and who do you fear let's go to the Lord in prayer Lord, so many lessons to learn that you have taught us from what happened to real people in a real time. Even though it's so long ago, Lord, these lessons still resonate down to our very hearts and speak to our circumstances as well. Lord, we're not facing anything like what Hezekiah faced. But Lord, we do face our own kinds of threats and intimidation in our day. Lord, help us, like Hezekiah did, to pray, to persevere, and then to praise you for the deliverance that you bring. As we come to your table, Lord, prepare our hearts to keep you first, to trust in you alone. And Lord, your table is a powerful reminder of why we can do that and why we should do that, why we must do that. So fill our hearts with gratitude and joy as we come to your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite the men to come and